Okay, let's pray together. Father, Lord, again, we come before you now. We thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. We pray that you would uh, instruct us and teach us now out of your word. Help us to see the greatness of your redemption and all that you've done, Lord, through your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, so if you have been uh, uh, studying biblical theology with us for any length of time, uh, that you will realize that what we've been looking at is uh, protology. So I know there's a couple new folks in here with us, so I will write some of these concepts uh, for us down again, uh, just so that you can see. But uh, uh, we've been studying protology, and um, uh, what we've said about protology is um, that protology, which is what? What is the definition of protology? Anyone? Robert? The study of first things, right? Just like eschatology is a study of last things, protology is a study of first things. And when you're talking about protology, uh, folks are talking about Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3 mainly. That's really mainly what you're talking about with protology. And here's the thing that we've been seeing in our study of protology, that protology, in fact, we can say is that protology leads to what? That's right. The eschaton, or eschatology, and eschatology is the study of last things. And so we've made the argument that what we're looking at in the early pages of Genesis is actually um, is actually sort of a, a, a forefiguring or a, a shadow, a, a foresignifying of things that will reoccur in Scripture until they reach their final destination in the last things, in the uh, end times, in the... Uh, in the eschaton, and we've talked about like different themes that you find uh, throughout the Bible that are developed out of protology. And I want you to think with me now: What are some of the things that you find at a protology that are developed over, um, let's say, over the span of Scripture? But then, what you also find in eschatology? Anybody have any any redemptive themes out of protology? Let's say Genesis one through three that is reoccurring throughout the Bible. Anybody? The Trinity of God. Okay, I'll, I'll put the Trinity of God because um, where where would you go to, to see that? In Genesis. Yeah, or in Protology, mainly in Protology. Made in our image. That's right. The plural form, right? But that's kind of you know there's some debate about that. I take a I take a Trinitarian interpretation of those verses. You know, I think it is God, the Godhead speaking there. Yes, Jonathan. Tree of life. Tree of life. Remember, we talked about the tree of life. Um, uh, that is uh, mentioned uh, not just in Genesis, but also in Revelation. You find the tree of life mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. You find it in uh, chapter, I think it's 22, I think it's verse 17. Uh, just different places uh, in Revelation uh, where the tree of life reemerges again, which is really fascinating to think about. Thousands of years spanning supernatural revelation, which is just another way of talking about the Bible, right? Thousands of years of revelation, and then at the very end of time, at the eschaton, the tree of life reemerges again as a symbol that God is taking us from creation to new creation, right? That is the whole purpose for which God is um, uh, creating in the first place. Anything else? Paradise. Paradise. That's right. Paradise, or in Revelation, it's called the paradise of, of God. The paradise of God. What is the paradise of God? What is the paradise of God? What's that referring to? The garden. Eden, right? Eden. That's right. That's right. That's right. The paradise of God is a reference to Eden. 
Anything else from protology that you find in eschatology? Yes, ma'am. The seed, the idea of the seed. That's right. That's something that is um, what you're talking about there is Genesis 3.15, right? The Proto-Evangelion, which is the first promise of the gospel. And that's developed all throughout Scripture, the theology of Scripture, especially um, if you look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, I think verses 16 and following, you have there Paul really developing this concept of the seed uh, of Abraham, which connects us back to the seed of Genesis. But any, anybody else? Yes, sir? No death. No death? Yeah, or sin free. Sin free. Uh, sin free, no death. Yeah, that's right. You, you, you go back to a state of, of an ideal state of affairs, right? So, and, 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 and that's right, and that's part of the paradise image of eschatology, which is new heavens, new earth, right? So you have, again, a reference to the heavens, right? And the earth in eschatology, which is, speaking about, if we can put here, uh, you know, when it comes back around again, you're going to get new heavens, new earth, and that is ta- that's talking about um, Isaiah 65, of course, Revelation 21 through 22. That's talking about new heavens, new earth. Also, you have Second uh, Peter uh, 3:13 talks about the fact that we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. Wherein dwells what? Righteous. Now that's an interesting additive, right? You can look at look at your you look at your Bible there, but Second Peter chapter three verse thirteen says, "We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness." Now the reason I think that's interesting is because as you mentioned, no death, right, being part of the equation of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, in the original heavens and the new earth, although you had no death. Um, theologically, and this is where we would go from biblical theology back to systematic theology for a second, and we would say that what happened in Genesis 1-3 through is that man, although he was in a state of innocence, he lacked the positive righteousness that was necessary in order to propagate life, right? Um, any questions about that or any thoughts on that? Everybody know what I'm talking about? Um, Trish, make sure people know what I'm talking about. Okay, She's honest. She'll tell me. No one knows what you're talking about. <laughs> My wife, she can do that. Is that to say that Adam and Eve did not have a righteousness? Correct. Adam and Eve, they did not have a positive righteousness. What they had was innocence, but they did not have the righteousness that was to be uh, credited to them uh, so that they would have the authority to eat from the tree of life. So theologians conclude that what's going on in Genesis 1-3 through is that Adam and Eve are actually in a probationary period of time where they have to, through their own merit, through their own righteous deeds, by obeying the commands of God. And what were the commands of God? Do you remember Genesis chapter 2 where God tells Adam and Eve, I think it's verses 16 and 17, where uh, God tells Adam and Eve, you know, of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of that tree, or else what? You will die. And so God gives them a command, a covenantal command, that they were not allowed to transgress. And had they proven themselves, 
they would have earned righteousness and they would have had the authority to eat from the tree of life, right? So but they did not do that. Didn't you already have access to the tree of life? They had access, but it was like a, but there was still a potential for life, but there wasn't a, a realization of it because they didn't partake of the tree of life. So the most that we can, the most that we can gather is that though the, the tree of life was like a sacramental symbol of life, it wasn't, it wasn't something that they were able to attain yet. And, and so it must have been very quickly that they fell after the initial command was given. Because it, the Bible doesn't even account of them partaking, partaking of the, of the, the tree, tree of life prior to that. That's right. That's right. So they didn't have righteousness, authority, and uh, uh, that's the language that Revelation uses. Revelation says that we will have the authority to eat the tree of life. Think about that language, exousia, right? It doesn't just say that you will be able to eat the tree of life. It says that you will have the righteousness or the authority to be able to eat the tree of life. Very, very interesting. Of course, we know why we have righteousness to eat the tree of life, right? What's, why is that? Because we have Jesus Christ. So in other words, once we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, once we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then we are able to partake of the tree of life freely, Right? So what happened was is that the commandment came, they fell, and then God guarded the way to the tree of life. He prohibited man from eating of the tree of life. And so some theologians, what they, what they postulate is this, is that the reason why God had to block them from eating the tree of life is because it would have maybe, maybe confirmed them in that deadened state, Forever. right? Forever. Uh, and, and so God, by his grace and mercy, didn't let them eat the tree of life, lest they would just perpetuate their state of death. That's just, you know, that's a theory. Uh, any other questions about any of that, just with protology? Because that's, see how vast protology is, though? Uh, protology is really vast. Uh, it's really amazing. Um, so we've looked at a couple things. We've looked at day one. Uh, we've looked at day two. We've looked at day four of creation. And so now today I just want to touch on day three and day five. So if you look at Genesis 1, um, in verse 9, there you begin the conversation about day three of creation. And what is happening on day three? What happens on day three? Let me uh, remove this. Right? What happens on day three is that we have... The emergence of dry land. Dry land is, um, you know, is presented there by the dividing of the waters, right? The gathering of the waters. And what happens in the gathering of the waters is that he names the waters and he calls them sea. Now, if you look over at day five, which begins, oh boy, where does that begin? Verse 20. Begins in, day, in, in verse 20, then what you have in verse 20 now is a shift, and you begin to see what happens uh, to, the, to the sea, that it begins to be populated. So really, what I'm saying is that day three and day five symbolize the dry land and the sea. And the sea. Now, um, I want to just quickly make the case that we talked about last week. And that is that the original creation is being presented in the Bible as something of a 
cosmic temple of God. Right? As a cosmic temple. And how do you know that? Because of the of the uh, of the tabernacle of the temple, what we can call the microcosm uh, temple, right? So that is talking about the tabernacle, Solomon's temple. And so when you look at Solomon's temple, uh, what you find is a reflection of the cosmic temple, which is the creation. So we looked last week and we talked about how the tabernacle, which had three compartments, which had the outer court, then it had the inner tent that had two compartments, remember? This was the holy place, and this was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. This represents the outer court. Uh, not the old covenant, but the outer court. <laughs> and the outer court uh, had uh, both an altar and a laver, a basin. And in here was water, okay? And that's important because if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings, um, very unashamedly, as Solomon's temple is being built, you have a connection back to the cosmic temple of God in the microcosm of Solomon's temple. And what is it? Look with me uh, at verse... First uh, Kings seven, sorry, First Kings seven, verse twenty-three. I'll begin to read it for you. This is interesting because he's talking about the the building of the basin. This thing here, the laver, where the priests around there, there were other basins where priests would wash. This one just kind of stood. It was very tall and it was very large and held ten thousand gallons of water. It was a huge water basin. It really, wasn't for washing. It was for symbolism more than anything. And look at, look at what it says. Now, he made the sea of cast metal, 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its weight was 5 cubits, excuse me, height was 5 cubits and 30 cubits in circumference. Interesting. So he built the basin in the, in the outer court of the, of the tabernacle and then later in the temple, and what does he call it? The sea. The sea. It's really interesting. Why did he call it the sea? Yeah, Mike's got a study Bible back there. That's not fair. He's cheating. He's got an ESV study Bible. He's got pictures and everything. I'm not that fancy up here, Mike. I can't draw that well, so, you know. Um, but, yeah, notice it's called the sea. And, again, look at uh, He says it again in verse 24. Under its brim, gourds went around, encircling it ten to, uh, ten to a cubit, uh, completely surrounding the sea. Uh, verse 25, again, the sea was set up top of them, and all of their rear parts turned inward. So what happens is, is not only is the presence of the sea there, but on top of that, you also had symbolic imagery in the temple that represented the land, that represented the earth. Let me read one to you. Ezekiel 43, 14. Again, this is talking about the altar that was there in the outer court of the holy, uh, of the temple, right? And there it says that from the base of the ground to the lower ledge shall be two cubits and the width one cubit. Now, stop right there and I'll make a big deal out of this because um, I verified this, that the, that the, um, 
the altar was to be built. Now, the NASB translates it, Ezekiel 43, 14, translates it from the base of the ground. What's interesting about that is the Hebrew phrase is which means literally from the bosom of the earth. From the bosom of the earth, the altar was to be built. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh, Hebrew word. Ume hake. Uh, that just means from bosom. And ha eretz, well, eretz literally it can be translated the earth or the land, right? So, so there's an identification with the altar, with the earth, and with the basin, with the sea. Now, let's back up just a little bit here because I want to bring up different redemptive historical themes that are attached to these days of creation as well. And that is, um, if we look, for example, let me, I've got so much information here, I'm trying to distill it down for us. But let's, let's quickly go to uh, chapter, uh, verse 20 of, Revelation, of Genesis 1. Let's go back to day 5, okay? They're focusing on the, on the sea. I want to bring up something that I think a lot of times we kind of skip over. I was fascinated by this, and I was hoping that maybe you would be fascinated by this as well. It says, Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Look at verse 21. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. Now, I want to zero in on something there, and that is the reference to sea monsters. When's the last time you thought the Bible talked about monsters? <laughs> right? Uh, but what's interesting is that, in fact, sea monsters actually becomes a theme in the Bible. <laughs> uh, not making this up. I'm going to show it to you. Um, which is interesting to say, why? Why does God develop the idea of sea monsters in the Bible? Well, let me read something to you. Psalm 148, verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth. The sea monsters and all of their deeps. Okay, so we know on a very basic level that all of creation is for what? For the glory of God. It's for the praise of God. All the glory, or, or all the world is, you know, is, is, is just illustrating the glory of God. We know that. And it serves that purpose. But then it begins to develop. There's a redemptive tone that is... Uh, struck when the sea monsters are are then developed in the Psalms in connection with the victory of God over his enemies. Psalm 74, verse 12 and 14. It says, Yet God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters that were in the waters. You crushed the head of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So very early on in scripture, you have this development of the sea monsters. And now you have an identification of Leviathan as kind of the prototypical sea monster. Right? Leviathan almost becomes um, uh, sort of central when we think about God's... Uh, uh, monsters of the sea that are to be uh, associated both with God's power, number one, but also uh, with that which represents a threat 
Um, so, for example, you have in Ezekiel chapter 32, Pharaoh being connected with the concept of, of a sea monster. Um, and who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is an enemy of God. He is a political figure. He is a ruler. Um, he, he stands against... Um, he stands against God, against his people, right? And it says in Ezekiel 32, 2, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You're compared, You've compared yourself to a young lion of the nations. You are like the monsters of the sea. It's very interesting, right? How Pharaoh is now taken. And, and guess what? The Hebrew language, all the Hebrew language goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. Same language, same exact Hebrew words that are used there. For sea monsters. How about, yes, sir? I have a good verse. I don't know if you're about to use it or not. Okay. Isaiah 27. Steal my thunder all you want. That's my next verse. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you read it. You got it there. Okay. Um, 27. <laughs> 27. 1. I remember reading That's this. right. Um, but it says, speaking of the deliverance of Israel, it says, in that day the Lord will punish the Leviathan, the flaming serpent, with his, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. That's right. Yeah. Now, where do, we, where do we get the idea of a serpent, of a dragon? Where does that come up again? Revelation. In the book of Revelation. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, you can look there with me if you'd like. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 you have this exact imagery being now used by the authors of Scripture for apocalyptic reasons as God's triumph over uh, Satan, the Antichrist, and his forces, right? It says, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast, watch this now, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, um, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And so don't ask me what every little jot and tittle and hoof and, you know, toenail on the beast's, you know, body means. But, but all I know is this, is that this is an allusion back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is actually where the revelator is getting this imagery. And it's speaking there of political, military, and global powers that are against God. As, as, as uh, Daniel develops the images of the different monsters, creatures that represent different kingdoms. Really amazing, right? The imagery is just so deep, so profound. Now, turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. Because what happens is, is that we have an image of Jesus Christ or the angel of the Lord who represents Christ. There's a big debate um, Big debate here as to whether or not this is either Jesus uh, being presented as an angel or it's the angel of the Lord or just an angel that represents the Lord. That's kind of a debate. Um, and I haven't really studied it out enough to give you my final word. I, my suspicion is that, that it is uh, an angel that's representative of, of Christ. At least he's a messenger of Christ. But, but you're there, Revelation 10, beginning in verse one, what we see is that ultimately Jesus or this angel is depicted as having total sovereignty over earth and sea. Back to Genesis chapter 1, right? 
So the earth and the sea, these are two spheres or realms over which this angel is now expressing supremacy. Look what it says. I saw another strong angel um, coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud. Uh, Some would say that's another reason why they think it's the Lord, because the cloud there is the Shekinah glory. It's the glory cloud of the Spirit that is enveloping this angel. So they would say this is kind of Son of Man language. So there's there's just a lot that goes into the background of this, okay? And then it says, And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. That's why they're saying this is more than just your typical angel. Who is this? Uh, And he had in his hand a little book which was open. Now, the whole purpose of this is to unleash judgment. He's he's, going to unleash judgment. That's the whole purpose. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. Now, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've kind of a wild imagination. And so I'm thinking like, okay, is he walking down the beach? <laughs> so he's got like one toe in the water and one toe in the sand. I mean, what what is this land and sea? No, 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 no. And all of a sudden I realized, no, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, that's overlooking the point of the imagery. The point of the imagery, no, 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 no. Imagine the sea, the, the raging sea and the vastness of the earth. And imagine... This powerful angel standing on both the sea and the land, right? Expressing utter sovereignty and power over every sphere that God has made. Uh, that, that to me was like, okay, that, there we go. That's better than Jesus tiptoeing on, this, on the beach. <laughs> so, so and, and, and that's right. That's what G.K. Beale and others uh, signify. So, so, so what is he saying there? If this is, in fact, a sort of a, a Christophany of sorts, then you have Jesus appearing as this massive giant, right? I mean, how big do you have to be to put your foot in the ocean and the foot on the land? Oh, wow, that's amazing, right? So it, 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 it presents him as this giant that spans the earth and the sea. Just amazing. Of course, that's not because that's what he's actually going to look like when he comes back. It's symbolic. And, and it's ultimately covenantal. Here, I'll show you. Um, and it says here, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice, and when a lion, as when a lion roars, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uh, uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunders have spoken, and do not write them." Wow, isn't that amazing? The thunder speaking about the judgment of God. Then the then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up, watch this, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the thing and the sea and the things in it. You see that? That there will be delay no longer. So let let me um let me just uh say what's going on here, I think. What's happening here is that there's a reminder that the creator because notice he goes back to creation right the the says he who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it well isn't that what genesis chapter one is telling us the sea and the things in them and the earth and the things in the earth that god created right so what this is showing us is is that the, the 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 covenantal majesty of God. And, and I say covenantal because you understand in verse 5 
that the angel, when he stands on the land and he lifts his right hand to heaven. Now, what is that symbolic of? Anybody know? What's that? How did you know that, Jonathan? In Hebrews, the lifting up of the hand. Are you looking at cross-references? <laughs> Jonathan is right, as usual. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, the lifting up of the hand is actually a covenantal sign. It's a sign that you are speaking in the context of covenant. It's used in Deuteronomy 32, verse 40, of God. And it's also seen in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, in covenantal contexts. So it's just, just amazing uh, connections. Yes, ma'am? Well, no, I was just going to say, um, it kind of reminds us, too, in a way, like, it takes us back to Noah a bit, because you know the rainbow? Mm-hmm. Just in the beginning. Another covenantal sign. Yeah, the rainbow upon his head, and then that he's putting, you know, his foot in the sea and on the land, and that's the, those are the things, you know, it was a sea that covered the land. Yeah. So he's sovereign over those things, and then that's judgment. Yeah. You know, which... That's right. That's right. Um, now let me let me try to back up here a little bit, and and so we looked a little bit at the sea, and there's so much more. I mean, uh, David uh, David Murray in his book about Jesus on every page, he talks about how creation. He literally goes through different aspects of creation that are mentioned in Genesis, and how they become kind of illustrations or what he calls metaphors of the kingdom. You notice how much Jesus uses earthly metaphors for the kingdom, right? The kingdom is like, you know, the lily of the field. It is like the mustard seed. It is like the fig tree. It is like, right, all of this language of creation. That's just one way that you could you could develop the theology of creation. But I want to get to something a little bit more controversial. Um, and that is, uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, um, you see a very basic pattern that then is later developed again in the Bible that that pretty much everybody agrees to, and that's verse nine, which says, "Let the waters below and the heavens gathered into one place, and let the let the dry land appear." And we talked about this last time. The emergence of the dry land is going to be reiterated again. But it's going to be applied to what redemptive historical event? Where does dry land, after the dividing of the waters, where does dry land appear again? The crossing of what? Yes, ma'am. The Red Sea and the Jordan. Right? It uses that language. As a matter of fact, in Joshua, it uses the language of the Jordan. It talks about um, uh, the waters above and the waters below. A very intentional, exegetical detail by the author to take us back to creational language, right? That what is happening as the people of God are leaving the chaos of Egypt and going through the divided waters and the emergence of the dry land is that they are coming into a new creation. It's a new creation uh, in Canaan. Let me read to you Exodus fourteen sixteen. As for you... Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea in dry, on dry land. Also, Psalm 66, verse 5. Come and see the works of God, who is 
awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land, and he passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. So the emergence of the dry land becomes a redemptive historical theme. Now watch this now. That this theme is then connected to the language of restoration that is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ. So what I'm saying is that the language of the Exodus, the dry land, the emergence of the dry land, that is then picked up by the prophets, and they, what I like to say, they blow their eschatological wind on it, or their eschatological breath on it, right? And then that idea, that theme that becomes sort of a prophecy, a type, a shadow, a forefiguring of the final end-time exodus of God through Jesus Christ. Um, The land, therefore, is ultimately symbolical of Canaan. And what is Canaan? What is the land of Canaan all about? What is the symbolism of Canaan? Everybody know? Yeah, the synonymous. Canaan, promised land, same thing. What is that symbolizing? Heaven. Heaven. Uh, I, I want you to do me a favor. Turn to Jeremiah 32. Because what happens is is that the language of the dry land is connected to the concept of inheritance by divine fiat, which is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 1. God speaks, and it was. So in the same way, the the, the idea of inheritance by fiat, which means God is just going to speak this promise, he's going to speak this into existence. And it ultimately will be fulfilled in Christ and the church, fulfilled in the new heavens, the new earth. And here's the thing, here's the concept. And it's also connected to the new covenant. You guys there? Jeremiah 32. um, I was having a conversation with a friend who, um, um, rightly so, you know, uh, just initially coming into some of the biblical theology. And just wondering, like, wow, this is this is kind of a lot. I just really haven't looked at scripture this way, right? And and um, you know, I said, well, if you think about, and we, somehow we got on the land. How many of you guys know that the the land is a very controversial topic, right? In theology, why so? Well, it, it's it's talking about if you're putting a dual meaning on it mm-hmm. uh, instead of just simply looking at it in its historical context. Uh, you're, you're applying a future truth to it, which is divided in the community. So you're coming more from a hermeneutics, and, yeah. and you're right. Yeah. So I'm asking a different question. You know, Landon, what I was going to say? Well, was, Why is the land controversial? I was, I, I, I was going to go more than more than I think what, what he was probably talking about is more of like dispensational lines. Um, something where it was like the land that God is giving, like Israel today, or was that land typical? Uh, was, was the land restored typical of the land that was lost in Eden. And Correct. was that always what it was meant to be? And Correct. So, yeah. that, yeah. so you have some explosive uh, theological uh, uh, you know, positions on this issue. That's why I say it's kind of controversial, but boy, it's everywhere in the Bible, is that the land, anytime you see references to the land, that is only and always referring to literal physical Jerusalem, and that will only and always be fulfilled only either in the millennium or prior to that, as God regathers the Jews back into Palestine. That's it, right? Here's the issue with that. The issue with that 
is that the land seemingly is connected to the arrival of the new covenant. Jeremiah 32, verse 36. It says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the city of which you say, It is given in the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of the lands uh, to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation. So no question, God here is speaking about exile. They're being thrown out of the land of promise, right, into these foreign lands like Babylon. And then it says, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell safety in safety. Now watch this. They shall be my people and I will be their God. If you can take that phrase right there, dear friends, and underline and circle and highlight or whatever you do, every time you see that phrase or something like that phrase, I will be their God, they will be my people. They will be my people, I will be their God. That is what I... That is almost, that's what I call the high point of the covenant. That is the consummation language of everything that God does covenantally in the Bible. That is when we have reached the climax. What is the climax of all of God's covenantal dealings on planet earth? It is so that we will be with him and he will be with us. Isn't that glorious? We will be with him and he will be with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. How? In covenant consummation and in a perfect communion bond with one another. Uh, This is is shown to us by Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 uh, after it talks about the tabernacle of God is with man. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that goes all the way back to Genesis uh, with the covenant of Abraham. But guess what, what I would say? That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God was Guess what? With his people. Right? So God is taking us from protology to eschatology. And some would say, and then when you arrive at eschatology, where you're at is actually kind of a return to protology because you arrive again in the paradise of God. Right? Only it's much greater this time. Look at what it says here. They shall be my people, I will be their God, and I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me always um, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Now, now watch this. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. Uh, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Verse 41, very, very important. I will rejoice over them to do them good. Watch this now. And I will faithfully what? Plant them them in this land. That's so interesting. Now, was there a literal historical fulfillment of that? Yes. Anybody? Right? Did that actually happen? Now, I'm not talking about in the future, there's some prophecy here. I'm talking that it actually happened historically. Anyone? Anyone? This mic? Different question about the land. Why was God so adamant about choosing Canaan, this land, at that time? Right. I'm just curious because of what was going on there. It's a good question. I, I would just say the only the only thing I could say to that is because it, it would become a um, it would become a type, right, of the future heavenly land, right? Uh, really bad and because in the day. and because of what God did there. 
you know what I mean, by choosing, taking a man out of Ur of Chaldees and planting him in that land and then promising that land by covenant, giving it to him, right, and to his descendants forever. Um, but was this actually ever historically fulfilled? Yes. There was a partial restoration out of Babylon and they came back, right? When the decree of the king went forth in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, they did go back. They did, they did start rebuilding the walls, all of it. The problem is, is that it never reached its typical fulfillment. In other words, it never fully reached what God had fully promised. Because what this is promising is something more than, than, than what can be found in this sinful world. Right? Ultimately, Isaiah, uh, this is where Isaiah comes to speak of the land in terms of a new heavens, new earth. I will plant them in this land. Uh, Verse 43. Fields will be bought in this land. See that? Verse 44. In the environs of Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, and the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of Negev. For, watch this. I will restore the fortunes. Their fortunes declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. Now, real quickly. We have a few minutes. So I hope you're not fizzling out on me yet. Ezekiel 37. A very, very um, close parallel to what we're looking at here. But here's the amazing thing. Is that while... Watch this now. While... While Jeremiah 32 connects land and covenant... Boy, my writing's ugly. Sorry. <laughs> Ezekiel 37, right? Ezekiel 37. And I'm going to tell you to go to verse 24. 28. Connects, um, not land, land. Watch this. Covenant. Watch this. Look at Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them. Now you know that you are in, uh, now you know that you are in uh, Christological territory. Why? My my servant David will be king over them. What what was that, Jonathan? David's David's been dead for a long time. So he's obviously not talking about David, the son of Jesse, right? He's talking about David, the Davidic king, or the messianic king, right? And they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Watch this. They will live on in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on in it, they and their sons and their sons sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Watch this now. I will make a covenant of peace with them. I would say that's the same. How do you know it's the same covenant as Jeremiah? Here it is. It will be what? An everlasting covenant. You know you're talking about the new covenant. And watch this. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set what? My sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Sound like a parallel? 
And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Watch this. When my sanctuary is in their midst. When is the sanctuary of God ultimately, fully, finally in our midst? In the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. So let's end there because I always end there. Revelation chapter 21, everybody. And this will bring us, this will bring us to, I think, the fulfillment of all of these promises, the consummation of all of these things. Then I saw new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now stop, I'm going to develop this, Lord willing, next week. There, the first heaven and the first earth did what? Okay. I don't have time, I don't have time for this, so that's why I'm going to do it anyway. So, <laughs> a basic pattern that we find in Scripture is this. Creation, right? Decreation. A reversal of creation. An undoing of creation, of the original creation. And then... Right? This is very important here. Decreation language is found all throughout the eschatology of the prophets. Guess, guess how they talk about the end times? They talk about the end times as desolation, but they talk about the end times as an undoing of the book of Genesis. Unraveling of the days of creation. Step by step, they go through the sea, they go through the earth, they go through the heavens. They talk about the luminaries that God, the stars, the sun, the moon, unraveling as all part of how God is going to bring a new creation about. We go creation, decreation. God deconstructs the present creation, undoes it until we arrive at a recreation at a new heavens and a new earth. And that's exactly what's happening here. I saw the holy city... Uh, uh, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the sanctuary or the tabernacle or the temple of God is among men. Revelation 21, verse 3. And he will dwell among them. And here's the, I told you, the the, the consummation of the covenant, that, 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 that phrase that just, all important phrase, they shall be his people, God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, their eyes. There will be no longer any death, there will no longer be any mourning, crying, pain, decreation. The first things have passed away. See that? So, any questions? Final statements, encouraging statements from 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 any of it. You're on thin ice right now. Oh, okay. In that way. Okay. <laughs> you know what's funny though is I did point this out to Trish because we're both you know dog lovers, animal lovers. She's an animal lover. I'm a dog lover. 
don't really care for cats. Don't throw nothing at me. Don't throw nothing at me. But if you look at a lot of old Puritan, if you look at old Puritan books, what you find is that a lot of Puritans, the art, a lot of times you have Puritans studying with animals at their side. You ever see that? Anyway, go go dog lovers especially, but animal lovers. We got to go to worship.